Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. We've finished book one of War and Peace. Well done. Let's have a little recap of book one before we move on to book two. And we'll talk about that previous chapter two, chapter 25. So well done if you've um, stuck through it and made it through book one. I think we've got a really good sort of retention rate this year. It looks like a lot of people are sticking to it. Usually the retention rate is pretty high. Most people stick to it, but you do see quite a few drop-offs, you know. When you get a thousand new people interested in reading War and Peace, by the end of book one, you know, you might be down to 700 or something like that. But I think our retention rate would be higher than that just by looking at what's been happening with the conversations and stuff. So that's great because we're kind of past the hardest part. By now you've decided if you're going to stick to it or not and um, whether, you know, whether you've been enjoying it or not. On that note, though, going from book one to book two is one of the challenging points. So I'm just going to forewarn you. And I'll actually read this comment here by Acoustic Eels because Acoustic Eels has done a really good job of explaining what I'm about to say. Acoustic Eels says, We all made it through the first book. Now I want to say to everyone that this first transition between settings, this is going from book one to book two, is a big jump, even bigger than some of the later breaks between parts. So between like part one and part two, going from book one to book two, which is all within part one, is a massive transition. Uh, and you might not feel settled in for a f- in the new place for a few chapters. There are a lot of unfamiliar terms and people, lots of war terminology you might not know. It can be a tough read for a minute. Don't give up. Once you make it through the first stretch of this part, you'll start to see familiar characters again and you'll have a good feel for the wartime atmosphere. I like to focus on how exciting it is that we're on the front line of a major European war. We can hear the personal reactions of otherwise nameless soldiers as they react to events in real time. And that's a cool thing that Tolstoy does. And from what I remember, Tolstoy did a pretty rigorous job researching the Napoleonic Wars. So that, so what we're about to read is pretty historically accurate. Anyway, hang in there. Yep. Really good message there because it is... The, the following chapters, it jumps dramatically. We're going to war, you know. Um, and it kind of throws you in the deep end. It's a little bit like when we first started, when we were in Anna Pavlovna's soiree, and you're kind of, again, in that feeling of like, oh, okay, what's going on? It takes a few chapters for everything to settle into place. But now if you went back and reread those Anna Pavlovna soiree chapters, you feel very at home and comfortable, and you know everyone in the room. You sort of get a feel for it. The same thing happens with the war. But it is a bit daunting because, you know, there is a lot of war military terminology and stuff like that so we'll do the same thing we always do we'll go through it one chapter per day and we'll lay it all out nice and straight before we do that though i'm going to read a summary of um, book one the only thing though is um i guess the only thing i would say uh what am i saying here the difficult thing here is that i don't have my book Oh, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm at my girlfriend's house tonight. So I don't have... I've got one old copy of Maud. And the best thing about this old copy is that it has uh, a summary of every single chapter in the whole book. And so I can flip to that and read the chapter summaries for every one of the last 25 chapters. And it's just... It's literally like it boils them down into like two two sentences, you know. But it's a really good way to recap. So when I get back home, probably for tomorrow's episode, I'll do that. But in the meantime, I found this um, one on schmoop.com. Schmoop is also pretty good. And this is a really brief summary. I'll read it for you now. It's 1805. 
We meet a lot of people at a party in Petersburg, a.k.a. St. Petersburg, Russia. There's Pierre, one of the illeg- illegitimate children of Count Bezikov. Pierre is awkward and strange, but his father's favourite child, and his father is old and rich, so he's got, excuse me, he's got that going for him. There's also Pierre's good friend, Andre Bolkonsky, who is a little too smart for his own good. Andre is married to Lisa, a social butterfly whom he kind of hates. And then there's the Karagin family, generally a bunch of sleazeballs who are only looking out for themselves. Pierre likes to booze it up and cruise the ladies, but his friend Andre wants him to straighten up and fly right. Pierre wants to quit the bad behaviour, but gets sucked in into it by Anatole Karagin. There's one particularly bad night of partying that gets a lot of Anatoly's buddies sent away from Petersburg. Then Pierre's dad has a series of strokes and dies. There's a struggle over the wheel, but with some help from Anna Mikhailovna, Pierre comes out on top and inherits all his father's vast wealth and estates. Okay, now on to Moscow. Tolstoy describes it as more Russian and less Europeanized and affected than Petersburg. Uh... Here we meet the Rostovs, a totally awesome, loving family. The Count and Countess love each other, but are terrible with money. Then there's 13-year-old Natasha, who loves Boris. Nikolai Rostov, who loves his cousin Sonia. The weirdly robotic Vera Rostov, who is engaged to Berg. That's a good way to um, put to phrase that. She's kind of robotic. Uh, and little Petra, who is just eight. All the boys want to go into the army, especially since war looks like it's about to break out. Andre thinks society sucks and decides to go to war. He leaves pregnant Lisa with his family at Bald Hills and goes off to be an adjutant for General Kutuzov, who's the commander-in-chief. Lisa is stuck with the horrible, dysfunctional Bolkonsky family. There's crazy, abusive, and generally unpleasant Prince Bolkonsky, Andre's dad. And there's Andre's homely sister, Maya, who is super-duper religious. Maya is forever being mistreated by her father. And that pretty much brings us up to speed. Um, we only get a little look in with the Rostovs, but the Rostovs are sort of, you know, one segment of main characters. Um, I wouldn't say any particular Rostov is a main character, but that family is sort of like a main family. So there's going to be a lot of Rostov action, but we only really get that, I think, two or three chapters with the Rostovs, uh, with the name day ceremonies and that kind of thing. Ripster 66. Okay, let's let's talk about chapter 25. Ripster 66 says this. It's interesting to, to me how social expectations shape these characters. I think that's the source of Andre's unhappiness. He married a pretty little thing as expected of him, but he has no real emotional connection with her. His father even sympathizes with him about it in a way that suggests this happens all the time. On the other hand, the little princess performs what she thinks is expected of her, only to find it completely out of place in this rustic and intellectual setting. Now he's off to war as a way of escaping his married life, but I'm quite sure his naive expectations of an officer's life are going to be crushed. Whether he survives or not, I don't know, but he will be a very changed man if he comes home. Um, There's a moment in that previous chapter, in the chapter we just read, sorry, um, where for a second you almost sort of see things Prince Andre's way, and it's when... He goes in to see his wife and she's sort of saying a little snippet of gossip and he says that he's heard her say that exact sentence five or six times, including the little laugh she does at the end of it. And for a little second, you're like, it's kind of like, oh yeah, that is awful. Like, <laughs> I, uh, I'm on Lisa's side, but at the same time, 
she's a fish out of water, isn't she? See, if you're a social butterfly and you're going to all different parties and stuff, that's okay to, you know, have an awesome story that you tell at different settings. But yeah, when you know when you see that happen and it just becomes a bit like, oh, I see this guy's, I see this person's shtick. You know, you're too familiar with their shtick. It is a bit cringy. Brian A. Denton said this. This is a very interesting perspective. This is in response to Rip to 66. If I am understanding you correctly, you're saying that social law, for lack of a better term, determines individual personality. I think that's exactly right and is probably what Tolstoy intended with these characters, especially as it relates to the larger themes of historical determinism that will develop later in the novel. I really like this comment. Thanks. Very interesting. All right. So it's a bit like... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I would agree that your your culture, your immediate culture, will have a big part in playing, uh, play a big part in shaping your personality. And we're a little bit at the mercy of that. And I think it would be even more so back then when they didn't have much insight into other role model cultures, you know, other than you could read about them in books. But we can, you know, watch a TV show and mimic that culture if we like the look of someone's sort of uh, way of life. We can kind of appropriate it, I suppose. Okay, Sufjan fan said, damn, she didn't even get to say bye. Just fainted and he dropped her in a chair and left. Cold. Warren Kovofi says, no time for emotions at the Bolkonskis. And Acoustic Eel says, and then the old prince sticks his head out the door and says, humph when he sees the passed out princess and slams the door again. I like Prince Andre's attitude when he goes out to say his goodbye to Lisa and he's almost like, all right, come on, give me the, let's get it over with. Put on your little song and dance. <laughs> it is cold, but also, I don't know, you can see how just frustrated he is with her. Beneckers said, if I had to guess based on the contents of this chapter, I'd say Andre will return from the war, but he might not have a wife to return to. Ah, uh, yeah, the talk of the midwife was ominous. Um, maybe it was Andre and not the little princess that had cause to fear for the other's life. War and Kavafi says, overall, book one was very enjoyable, and I actually really like this closing segment with Andre and his family at Bald Hills. We still have so much to cover, but I'm guessing with Andre leaving, officially leaving for war, things might start to get bleaker for some of our characters. Uh, I think Andre returns, uh, but it's likely he will be very changed. I think that his romantic notions about war and being somehow above his peers and their social norms will be very different upon his return. Hopefully, he will appreciate what he has a little more. There's a cool thing that happens in the war scenes, and I think we'll see it a bit in book two, um, which is very much war-focused. Um, but I think you see it further down the novel as well, and all throughout the novel, really, is that this attitude towards war that they have. It's like they get giddy over it. They Even if they're surrounded by people falling in bloody heaps, they've still got this, like, how cool is this? It's as if, like, I don't know. If you, It's like they're playing VR or something, you know what I mean? Like, they just seem to think it's the coolest thing ever, even if it's horrific. Um... All right, read a few more comments and then, hey, off we go to start book two. It's pretty exciting. A big change in scene coming up. Here we go. Uh, Zukov17 said, summary. Andre begins getting ready for war deployment. Like his father, he is very rigid and emotionless in his preparations. Uh, 
His sister Maya enters his room. She is complaining that it he isn't nice enough to his wife and she tries to explain how bored Lisa will be here in the country. Andre admits that their marriage isn't a happy one. Maya also gives Andre a family, family heirloom, an icon of Jesus, which is like a little necklace thing, that all the Bolkonsky family members have taken into war. Andre is sceptical, but he takes it anyway. Andre's father enters next. They try to stay matter-of-fact, even when Andre asks his father to raise his unborn child at the Bald Hills country estate if he doesn't survive the war. They discuss Andre's unhappiness, but his father reassures him that all marriages are difficult. The next day, Andre says goodbye to his wife and leaves. It isn't emotional at all. Yeah, I feel like there's a big subtext with that meeting with Andre and his father where it is very robotic, um, and his father's like, say now what you want to say, and let's get that said. But at the same time, there's like a brief moments where the father expresses his approval of Andre going to war, and I feel like that would be a very rare thing of his father almost saying like, you know, I approve of what you're doing, son. I feel like he would have nearly never done that in all of Andre's life. And then we get this glimpse at the moment where he actually almost says something nice, you know. Twisted Every Way says this. Wow, I finished book one. A thoroughly enjoyable read. I have heard the war parts are a little harder to, to digest, so I am not sure if I'm glad to be moving on or not. I want to say I think that Andrew may be killed. There was some foreshadowing in this chapter that seems suspicious, especially the part about raising the baby slash son, uh, if he should be killed. But I could also see him returning and being quite changed, like you think he has a disdain for high society and performs now performances now, wait until he's seen some action in war. It's interesting that we've now discovered that Lisa pretty much knows her husband doesn't like her and is probably going to war to escape life with her. What a sad life, married to someone who disdains her. Um, disdains her, pregnant, quite soon dumped in the country with unlikable family, while her husband goes off to war to possibly be killed. Yeah, you got to feel bad for poor old Lisa. And as much as it's cringy, you know that she is this society social butterfly, and she loves telling her little gossip stories and stuff. It's in in context, like, that's a perfectly okay thing to be. You know, she is a social butterfly. But when you take her out of that and plonk her in the country, you've got to feel bad for her that she's so out of her element. And how bored would you be? And also, not only that, but it could be nice. It could be idyllic and peaceful out there. But she's stuck with this grumpy old bugger who, you know, runs the household as if it, he's at war or something with you know, his own family. Um, Real Skydiver says, an ominous way to close the introduction part, signaling the end of peace, I guess, and pacing has been overall pretty slower as expected. Will there be more main characters introduced that will play a central role? And why does the Maud version turn the first three books into three parts of one book? Yeah, Maud went all over the shop with it. They tried to rearrange it into a different order. I don't know why. Um, yes, there are more central characters coming up. We kind of know the main characters, but there are more more kind of secondary main characters. And also with the Rostovs, we met the sort of whole family, and they are a kind of main family, but in different parts of the book, different ones of those characters emerge as sort of lead actors, lead characters, in that section. Um, so yeah, we'll get to know a lot of characters 
in the same way as we got to know Pierre and Andre and, you know, and these people. All right. So I, I reckon let's start book two, hey? Now, here's the thing about book two. All these chapters I'm reading you from the Andalus translation are sort of first drafts. So eventually once I've finished all of them, they will be then kind of tinkered with and edited and kind of ironed out the kinks a little bit because this chapter, book two, chapter one, I actually wrote um, pretty early on before I finished book one. So this was one of the first ones I did. And so I hadn't really found that rhythm yet of exactly how I wanted them to come across. So if it feels a little bit out of place, it's because I haven't done that process of ironing out the kinks just yet. All right, here we go. Uh, Book two, chapter one. And yeah, just as we said, brace yourself for a real change of scenery. In October 1805... A massive bunch of Ar- Russian army men occupied the villages and towns of the Archduchy Arch- Arch- of Austria, and more regiments were flowing in from Russia and settling near the fortress of Brunau, which was a real pain in the ass for the locals who had to put them up. Brunau was the HQ of Big Dog Kutuzov, the commander-in-chief. On October 11th, 1805, one of the infantry regiments that had just got to Brunau had stopped half a mile from the town waiting for Big Dog Kutuzov to give them a sniff over. Even though their surroundings were extremely un-Russian, this place had fruit gardens, stone fences, tiled roofs and hills, and the curious locals who couldn't stop gawking at the soldiers were pretty un-Russian too. Still, the regiment itself looked as Russian as the most Russian-y regiment you've ever seen. On the evening of the last day's march, the order for the sniff-over had been received. The big dog-in-chief himself would inspect the regiment on the march. Though the order was a little vague to the regimental commander, and this made them question whether the troops should be presented in marching order or not, the battalion commanders decided to present the regiment in parade order, figuring that it was better to bow too low than not low enough. So the soldiers, after marching 20 miles, had to stay up overnight fixing and cleaning their kit without a wink of sleep while the adjutants and company commanders calculated and reckoned. By morning, the regiment, who were by now in absolute struggle town, appeared to be 2,000 perfectly fine men in tip-top shape with every button and strap in place, each of them knowing his place and his duty. And it wasn't just the top layer that looked all schmick. If Big Dog Kutuzov felt like doing a deep sniff, he'd have found under each uniform a nice clean shirt, and in each knapsack all of the correct things, all, soap and all, as the soldiers say. There was only one thing they were all a bit iffy about, the state of the soldiers' boots. More than half the men's boots were completely had it. But the regimental commander couldn't be blamed for this. He'd made repeated demands for boots, but the Austrian commissariat 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 sorry (laughs) but the austrian commissariat hadn't issued any and the regiment had just marched 700 miles the commander of the regiment was a testy old bugger a bit on the fat side he was wider from front to back than he was from side to side with grizzled eyebrows and whiskers 
His uniform was brand spanking new, with creases still showing where it had been folded, and thick gold epaulets which arched up rather than laying flat on his massive shoulders. He had the air of a man happily performing one of the most dreary duties of his life. He strutted around in front of the line, and at every step pulled himself up, slightly arching his back. It was clear that the commander thought highly of his regiment, was proud of it, and that his whole mind was fixated on it. Yet his strut seemed to say that there was more to him than just military matters. He also, he was also pretty interested in social matters and chicky babes. Well, Michael Mitrich, sir, he said, talking to one of the battalion commanders who approached him with a smile. They were both feeling happy, anyone could see as much. Big bloody job last night, but I reckon the regiment scrubs up all right, eh? The battalion commander perceived his jovial irony and laughed. Not even the Sarsin Meadow would turn them away. What? asked the commander. Just then, on the road, from the town where the signalers had been posted, appeared two men on horses. It was an aide-de-camp and a Cossack. The aide-de-camp had been sent to confirm the order from the day before, the one that had been too vague that the commander-in-chief wanted to see the regiment in the same condition it had been in during the march, in their greatcoats and packs, and without any sprucing up at all. A member of the Hofkriegsgraf from Vienna had come to Kutuzov the day before with proposals and demands for him to join up with the army of the Archduke Ferdinand and Mack, and Kutuzov thinking that idea was bonkers, was making every case he could against it, including showing the Austrian, Austrian general how shabby his troops were upon arrival from Russia. That was the whole point of meeting the regiment. The worse their condition, the happier he would be. Though the aide-de-camp didn't know the ins and outs of the situation, he nevertheless delivered the confirmed order that the men should be in their greatcoats and in marching order. Otherwise, Big Dov Kutuzov would be pissed. Hearing this, the regimental commander hung his head, silently shrugged his shoulders, and spread his arm in a what-next gesture. Well, looks like we've fucked this one up, he remarked. See, didn't I bloody tell you, Michael Mitrich, that by on the march he meant in greatcoats, said he, pissily to the battalion commander. Bugger me, he added, stepping resolutely forward. Company commanders, he shouted in a voice accustomed to command. Sergeant's Major, how far off is the big dog? ETA? He asked the aide-de-camp with a respectful politeness evidently relating to the person he was talking about. One hour, I reckon. We got time to change clothes? I don't know, General. The regimental commander going up the line to the line himself ordered the soldiers to change into their greatcoats. The company commanders scurried off to their companies. The sergeant sergeant's major started bustling the greatcoats were in pretty shabby condition and instantly the squares that had up to then been in regular order and silent started swaying and stretching and humming with voices on all sides soldiers were fanging about throwing off their knapsacks with a jerk of their shoulders and pulling the straps over their heads unstrapping their overcoats and drawing the sleeves on which drawing the sleeves on with their arms upstretched in half an hour everything was back in order, only the squares had become grey instead of black. The regimental commander walked with his jerky steps to the front of the regiment and examined it from a distance. What the fuck is this? This, 
he shouted and stood still. Commander of the Third Company. Commander of the Third Company, wanted by the General. Commander to the General, Third Company to the Commander. The words passed along the lines, and an adjutant ran to look for the missing officer. When the eager but ultimately mangled words reached their destination in a cry of General to the Third Company, the missing officer appeared from behind his company and, though he was a middle-aged man and not really into running, trotted towards the general, looking like an absolute goose because of how bad he was at trotting. The captain's face showed this piss-scared look of a schoolboy asked to repeat a lesson after having dicked around in class. Spots appeared on his schnoz, the redness of which was evidently due to him being a massive pisshead, and his mouth twitched nervously. The general looked the captain up and down as he trotted up like a big old piece of shit running out of breath as he approached. Next you'll be dressing them in petticoats. What the fuck is this? shouted the regimental commander, thrusting his jaw forward and pointing at a soldier who stood out in the ranks of the third company because his bluish greatcoat didn't match the others. Are you off your tits or what? Big Dog K is going to be here any minute and you nick off from your place, eh? And you dress this soldier in a fancy coat too? I'll fucking teach you, eh? The commander of the company, with his eyes fixed shit scaredly on his superior, saluted his fingers as hard as he could against his cap, as if in this finger pressure lay his only hope for survival. Cat got your tongue? Say something. Who's this you've dressed up as a Hungarian? said the commander with tiger snake venom. Your Excellency. Duh, Your Excellency. Duh, Your Excellency. Your Excellency what? What do you know about Excellency? Fuck all, because you're totally unexcellent. Your Excellency. Bitch. Your Excellency is the officer Dolokhov, who was reduced to the ranks, said the captain softly. So? Was he demoted into a field marshal or into a soldier? Because a soldier should be dressed in regulation uniform like the others. Your Excellency, you demoted him yourself on the march. What? Gave him leave? Leave? That's so typical of you young pricks, said the regimental commander, cooling down a smidge. Leave, indeed. What? Just because I give you leave, you what? He added, with growing irritation, just dress your men decently for crying out loud. And the commander, turning to look at the adjutant, directed his jerky steps down the line. He was clearly pleased at his own display of anger, and walking up to the regiment, wanted to find another excuse to blow up. Having snapped as an officer for an, having snapped at at an officer for an unpolished badge, at another because his line was not straight, he reached the third company. How, how, how the fuck are you standing? Where's your leg? Your leg, you idiot! Shouted the commander with a tone of suffering in his voice, while there were still five men between him and Dolokhov with his bluish, grey uniform. Dolokhov, slowly straightened his bent knee, looking dead ahead with clear, no-fuck-given eyes in the general's face. What with the blue coat, hey? Off with it, Sergeant Major. Get this coat off this fuckwit he did not finish. General, I must obey orders, but I am not required to endure... Dolokhov hurriedly interrupted. No talking in the ranks. No talking nada. Not bound to... Ah... Shut the fuck up, shut the... I'm not bound to endure insults, Dolokhov concluded loudly, his voice ringing out around the third company. The eyes of the general, the soldier, met. 
The general became silent, angrily yanking at his right at his tight scarf. I request you have the goodness to change your coat, he said as he turned away. Alright, there we go. There's that chapter for you. A little bit iffy. A couple of bits where I wasn't even sure what I was getting at. But I'll have to do a bit of an edit on that. But I think the most of it was pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. A lot of swearing. Might have to tidy that up a bit too. Alright, thanks for listening to that. Welcome to book two. Um, have your say over in the subreddit and I will see ya tomorrow.